As promised at the top of the program, we are now going live to Davis, California for the opening of the Davis branch of a Cava Bar, the Root of Happiness. We spoke with Tyler Blight, the proprietor, some months back, I think at this point, about his Sacramento establishment, and he was optimistic that he would be moving over to Davis. And frankly, I had some doubts, but boy, has he proven me wrong because they're having a bang-up opening as we speak. Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Tyler. Thank you. Good to be here. And what are your thoughts here as you see people streaming in the door? I, I'm a little shocked. Uh, well, we kind of were as well. Um, we just kind of opened the door to see who would kind of stroll and meander in. And it uh, looks like half the town is here. You didn't put a whole lot of PR out. People just came in. I mean, it's a Friday night in Davis, and Davis is notoriously dead town, at least when I lived here. But boy, everybody is beat a path to your door. It, it would appear so. Uh, can't complain, though. And also joining us for the first time on radio is the co-proprietor, Travis, who has a thing or two to say, I think, about Kava and the opening here. What's your, what are your thoughts? Honestly stunned, but really, really happy, to tell you the truth. It's, it's nice to see such a wide uh, demographic and range of people. I mean, we have teenagers, uh, students, you know, adults, uh, and then elderly people, all races, genders, creeds, colors, coming in and enjoying Kava, and it's beautiful, honestly. It's something that I think uh, when we were drinking Kava eight years ago in our kitchen, straining it through a T-shirt, we would have never, ever guessed we'd be sitting here in the heart of downtown Davis enjoying Kava with all these wonderful people, and it's electric. I don't even know what to say. I really am stunned right now. Well, I think Davis likes to pride itself on being open to new ideas, and Kava is certainly a new idea. It's, uh, we, as we reviewed on our program some months back, well, actually, we should do it, I think, for listeners that may have missed that. Let's talk a little bit about what exactly this substance is and what its history is. Kava itself is, uh, is a phenomenal plant from the South Pacific. Basically, all of Oceania has uh, taken part in this plant for uh, the better part of almost 3,000 years of, of history that we know of, from uh, Melanesia to Polynesia to Micronesia. And um, Tyler and I have just come to really appreciate uh, this plant and its medicinal qualities over the course of several years. And um, uh, it's, it's got a tried and true use. Uh, it, it's, it's a plant that uh, you know, humankind has saw fit to uh, cultivate uh, rigorously for, for a very long time. And that, that definitely has something to say about the overall quality and uh, medicinal uh, effects of, of such a cool plant. Well, we talked, I think, last time about how the Polynesians, were the world's greatest uh, seafaring people, left somewhere in Southeast Asia and, and went everywhere. Got as far as Easter Island. I mean, this giant triangle in the Pacific between Easter Island, uh, New Zealand, and Hawaii, which is a vast expanse. Everywhere they went, they took food, taro, chickens, pigs, etc. But everywhere they went, they also made damn sure they brought their kava with them, which I think is very interesting. This is true. And, and so it, you can follow the migration of kava, uh, you know, from Vanuatu and, and some of the more ancient islands where, where populations settled. You, you can follow that migration until it gets to Hawaii, where they only have 13 cultivars of kava. So all the way through, they just started paring them down and only taking the very best varieties with them until it reached Hawaii, where they only have 12 varieties there. So in Vanuatu, Papua New Guinea, some of these places, you get hundreds of varieties. And as they, as they brought it, you've got less and less until you got the very best cream of the crop, which is Hawaiian kava. Well, I think some of our listeners have probably been to Fiji and places where they were offered a bowl of kava and have some idea of, of what it does. I think we should probably talk about that again as well. It's not alcoholic beverage, uh, and it does not have a, a, by any means effects identical with alcohol, but alcohol is known for relaxing people, and so does kava in, I guess you'd say, a milder way. Most definitely. It's definitely not an intoxicant, but something that's uh, really, I think, uh, uses a medium uh, to socialize around. 
I mean, if you look at the historical setting of Kava, it's, it's always uh, in like a ritualistic or like a social setting. You either have a very large group of people, you know, from all over the place, especially in some of the, um, some of the different islands like Tonga or in Samoa where you have, uh, you know, an order of importance, you know, people would sit. But it still meant that everyone got to come to the circle and sit back and enjoy it and have a very good mood-enhancing uh, effect. And, I mean, I think it's provide that time and time again. Well, I just I, I want to jump in and note that for my part, as a physician, I first discovered Kaba many years ago when an anesthesiologist friend of mine went to Fiji and Vanuatu, and uh, I find it to be a wonderful substance for people that need a just a little bit of something to help them sleep. I mean, it's relaxant, and I've I've sent a lot of people off to various stores to get tinctures. No one's ever come back to me and said you're full of it. That stuff doesn't work. Very mild. They're very satisfied with the results. It, it achieves that purpose. I would say admirably. It definitely does. I mean, even for uh, for me, essentially, you know, being being that we're here in uh, in Davis, you know, I mean, either way you go between here to San Francisco or into Tahoe, it's phenomenal outdoors out there to hike, uh, mountain bike, and a slew of other things. And after after a lot of uh, hiking or either like physical exercise, Kava is phenomenal. Uh, after that, at least for me, I know after a really long hike or a good mountain bike, I, I'm going straight for the Kava bar, man. Uh, for, a, for a high tide, just to sit back, really relax, and give my muscles and my mind a break. Well, I, I, I got to say, I've never really tried that, but I can I certainly see it being a wonderful thing just to kind of uh, relax with after a strenuous exercise. Absolutely. And going, going back to, you know, people, people use alcohol to relax, like, like you were saying, but, you know, the, the difference between Kava and alcohol is that Alcohol is a drug, more or less, and kava has always been used as a medicine. This isn't something that we can we can say more or less about alcohol. That, you know, the general purpose of alcohol is generally an intoxicant, rather than a, a medicinal or as a ceremonial type uh, type occasion. Well, one difference I did want to cite that people that go to bars are notorious for getting in bar fights and getting getting very aggressive, and that's just a mix of testosterone and ethanol, and it's not a good thing. <laughs> people, when they're relaxed on kava, that just doesn't happen. Not once. We, we've been open in Sacramento for 18 months and we haven't had a single altercation. Not one. People are either too lazy to fight or they just don't want to. It's really nice, honestly. I mean, from being able to sit back as business owners, you know, and not having to deal with that side of things while still having like a place where lots of people can come and gather, you know, and that's not an issue is... I can't even say how wonderful it feels to just come in every night and know that you're going to have a pod, like no one's going to be throwing punches or like Just support an environment of peace and relaxation and, and happiness. I do want to add one caveat, because I think a lot fail have to as a physician, that it will relax you to where if you keep drinking it, you might get a little bit too relaxed to get behind the wheel of an automobile. And that's true of a lot of substances out there, and we do have to put that little caution out there. Or a bike or a skateboard. So yeah, def if you are going to partake in, in excess, which we don't recommend, but if you happen to, uh, you know, we recommend you either take a cab or have a designated driver. Or I don't know, but I would imagine some people not knowing, being unfamiliar with the substance, may have gone a little too far and realized, oh, uh-oh. That can't happen. And if it does, uh, we're, we're, more than, we're more than willing to explain to people, you know, kava um, is something that indeed when you're drinking it, it's not an immediate effect. You know, it's a very calm, relaxing plant uh, in terms of its medicinal effects, and it acts, it's in no rush 
to uh, explore those effects with you whatsoever. It's taking its time just as much as you are. So it's kind of nice that the plant itself and then uh, the culture around the kava bar really is one and the same. You know what I mean? Uh, so it's, you know, take your time, sit back, but if, it, uh, if you do get a little too relaxed, by all means, uh, we'll, we'll be more than happy to help you. Luckily, here in Davis, uh, most things are within walkable distance. It's the biking town, and I think that people are going to do just fine. I mean, I, speaking from personal experience, you do get a little bit relaxed, but, you know, it creeps up on you very slowly. When I mentioned the uh-oh moment before, I think that's actually probably a pretty rare thing because it, it's not like you're all of a sudden, whoa, I've gone too far. It's true. It's definitely something oh. uh, over time, you know, that just uh, slowly but surely you'll be just kind of sitting there hanging out with friends and, you know, it's like, my God, I feel very relaxed. This is excellent, to say the least. Well, I'm very optimistic, gentlemen, that you're going to have a big success here in Davis because, well, this is your soft opening and you got people, you know, pouring in the doors. I think when you put a little publicity on this, people are going to be curious about it. They're going to want to, want to come down here. And I think, personally, I think they're going to be pleased with what they find. I think they will. Like I said, it's, we've, we've taken great care uh, to be very transparent and open about kava. Uh, not only, obviously, do we literally carry the best kava you will find here in North America, but as well as... Um, you know, research, literature, as well as our own lab work for every bit of kava that we sell here. Um, we'll be more than happy to, uh, to really uh, express the kind of quality that we deal in with here. And we, and we hope that the experience is truly the same to the actual material here that we offer at the Root of Happiness, seriously. Yeah. And we can't wait to share kava with Davis. And I do want to note one thing I've, I've observed already here at, uh, at your Davis um, Emporium, is that, uh, well, let's just say kava is not noted for being uh, kind of the palate. It's not the best tasting substance in the world, but you guys have been, you guys have been applying your, uh, your knowledge of bartending and chemistry here to come up with something that it tastes pretty good. Indeed, yeah. We, we've uh, really done our, our homework, um, you know, food science-wise on this. So we, we've come up with, um, you know, cabajitos, which, you know, sounds like a mojito. It's basically the same concept, mint and lime, uh, to kind of cover up some of that bitter. We have cava coladas, which are a wonderful frozen drink with tropical uh, frozen fruit smoothie with some kava infused into it. Uh, as well as hard, hard shots, we have some flavored shots of kava, uh, which are all types of different fruity flavors, as well as a, we have a Polynesian gold product, uh, which is phenomenal. It's, it's to go. It tastes like chai, but it packs quite a punch to it. You're really on the cutting edge of this substance. And I, I guess the question that comes to mind is, do you think the Fijians, Samoans, Tongans, and people that are used to this are going to embrace your, your new flavors? They have so far. They, they've been drinking this stuff for, for longer than anybody, and if, if anybody can appreciate it, it's them, believe me. To say the least, is when we first uh, opened up, you know, we knew uh, that, you know, uh, getting to partake on uh, a medicinal plant of another culture uh, was, was needed to be done with quality and with respect. And honestly, the entire way through, there hasn't been a negative, uh, a negative experience that we've, that we've had. And honestly, throughout everything we do, like I said, it's, it's quality throughout the entire bit. We have organic uh, syrups that we flavor your kava with. Uh, to that, to organic fruit that we do the smoothies with, and then as well as our retail products. Like if, if uh, like I said, the kava, you don't find that palatable. You can get organic like chai, Irish cream, chocolate, amaretto. Uh, so we can definitely help you out with that, uh, as well as our retail side. I mean, if, uh, if you do really enjoy kava, you can always walk away with some of our kava concentrate or even with one of our liquid tinctures, which are actually pretty tasty. Attention UC Davis students of food science. You may want to find your way over here and do some experimentation. I think everyone would profit from this. 
I think so, to say the least. Honestly, uh, you know, Tyler uh, has outdone himself on a lot of the food science things, to say the least. Um, you know, this, this guy's my brother. Been We've been doing this thing for, dear Lord, almost a decade. And uh, to tell you the truth, we really do have a cutting-edge product line with Kava that we're extremely proud of. Uh, and we really showcase, like I said, the inner workings of uh, every product we have, uh, right down to literally lab results as well as, uh, you know, clinical data as well. Tyler Lowen and Travis Blythe, the co-proprietors of the Kava Bar Root of Happiness here in downtown Davis. Gentlemen, best of luck. Thanks, Dr. Doug. Thank you. We appreciate it. Take care. chosen that piece of music because Kaba will send you over the rainbow. I think it's way too mild for that. But we do note that 2014 does mark the 75th anniversary of that wonderful motion picture, The Wizard of Oz. Now, personally, we think The Wizard of Oz, at least in movie form, is so good that it should be just left alone. Except Mr. Merlin thinks they should probably colorize the first part and final scene. Well, no, but no, when I had a chance to go see Wicked on the Broadway stage, I turned it down. I just thought Wizard of Oz should be left alone. Plus, I heard the music in Wicked wasn't very good. Nevertheless, I find myself in agreement with the author of Wicked, Gregory Maguire, who wrote a wonderful little piece in the current issue of Smithsonian. He was talking about Noel Langley's movie script, which was based on the 1900 L. Frank Baum novel, The Wizard of Oz. It's changed quite a bit in movie form, as you may know. But in the piece, McGuire noted that at a conference he once chatted up uh, Sir Salman Rushdie and discovered that both of them as kids had begun to write under the influence of the technicolor light of Oz. Rushdie told McGuire he thought that the only misstep in the film, which is one of the great films ever, was the ending. In the book, Dorothy's journey is real, but in Langley's script, she has merely experienced a wild dream. Said McGuire, I agreed the ending might constitute a cop-out, but there is one way that Langley's invention suits the story. All the way through the film, Dorothy encounters charlatans and liars. The wizard has no magic powers. Glinda the Good Witch waits until Dorothy's narrowly averted mortal danger before she reveals the secret of the ruby slippers. The Wicked Witch of the West, bless her little green heart, is probably the only adult figure who tells the truth. He notes, we must eliminate from this lineup the Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Cowardly Lion, because as individuals lacking the full complement of their adult powers, they perform the functions of childhood friends, not grown-ups in charge. Said McGuire, when Dorothy wakes up in the film's final sequence and the adults dismiss her insistence that she actually had traveled to Oz, we, the audience, realize that adults are so accustomed to lying to protect the young that they can't recognize the truth when it's spoken. In this way, Langley, like Baum, celebrates the hearts of the young, as more innocent and honest than those of their wizened elders. And I, and I have to agree with him on this. The movie portrayed the whole thing as a dream, but didn't you know that it really took place? I did. Mr. McMillan? I did not. What are you, a communist? 
Well, contrary to what he says, McGuire notes that we children in the audience know that Dorothy went to Oz and we have faith. The wizard may have had no powers of magic, but the story does. And we've been on a journey that none of us will ever forget. How could the scarecrow actually look like the farmhand if it was... Dude, it's, it's like in an alternate universe. Oh, like the evil Captain Kirk? Better. I stand corrected. And speaking of movie anniversaries, this year marks the 50th anniversary of... Dr. Strangelove. And we feel compelled to quote from a, an essay about it by Eric Schlosser, who said, Almost everything in Dr. Strangelove was true. Noted Eric Schlosser, released on January 29, 1964, Dr. Strangelove caused a good deal of controversy. Its plot suggested that a mentally deranged American general could order a nuclear attack on the Soviet Union without consulting the president. Schlosser said one reviewer, Described the film as dangerous, an evil thing about an evil thing. Another compared it to Soviet propaganda. An expert at the Institute for Strategic Studies called the events in the film impossible on a dozen counts. A former deputy secretary of defense dismissed the idea that someone could authorize the use of nuclear weapons without the president's approval. Saying, quote, nothing in fact could be further from the truth, unquote. But noted Schlosser, the first casualty of every war is truth. And the Cold War was no exception to that dictum. Half a century after Kubrick's mad general, Jack D. Ripper, launched a nuclear strike on the Soviets to defend the purity of our precious bodily fluids from communist subversion, we now know that American officers did indeed have the ability to start a third world war on their own. And despite the introduction of rigorous safeguards in the years since then, the risk of an accidental or unauthorized nuclear detonation hasn't been completely eliminated. Schlosser notes how back in the 1950s, U.S. administrations uh, had a problem. These uh, technological systems that were necessary to ensure that nuclear powers were always available for use in wartime may be quite different from those necessary to guarantee that such weapons can never be used. Dwight Eisenhower struggled with this dilemma. He wanted to retain presidential control of nuclear weapons while defending America and its allies. But in a crisis, those two goals might prove contradictory. What if the president were killed during a surprise attack on Washington, D.C., along with the rest of the nation's civilian leadership? Who then would order a nuclear retaliation? With great reluctance, Eisenhower agreed to let American officers use their nuclear weapons in an emergency if there was no time nor means to contact the president. And yes, Eisenhower worried that providing that sort of authorization in advance could make it possible for someone to do, he said, quote, something foolish down the chain of command, unquote and start an all-out nuclear war, but the alternative, allowing an attack on the U.S. to go unanswered, seemed worse. A few weeks after taking office, JFK was startled to learn that, yes, a subordinate commander faced with a substantial military action could start the thermonuclear holocaust on his own initiative if he could not reach the president. Kennedy and his national security advisors were shocked not only by the wide latitude given to American officers, but also by the loose custody of the roughly 3,000 nuclear weapons stored in Europe. Few of them had locks on them. Anyone who got a hold of them could detonate them. In December of 1960, 15 members of Congress had gone over to Europe to inspect our weapons, and Harold Agnew, a Los Alamos physicist, noted that he nearly wet his pants when he realized that a lone American sentry with a rifle was all that prevented someone from taking off in a plane carrying an atomic bomb and bombing the Soviet Union. The Kennedy administration decided to put uh, 
electromagnetic switches known as permissive action links, PALs, on the weapons. But for years after that, the Air Force and Navy blocked attempts to add coded switches to the weapons solely in their custody. During a national emergency, they argued, the consequences of not receiving the proper code from the White House might be disastrous, and locked weapons might play into the hand of communist saboteurs. A top Air Force general claimed the very existence of the lock capability would create a fail-disable potential for knowledgeable agents to dud the entire Minuteman missile force. They did, though, institute a two-man rule where it did take two people to launch a nuclear missile. And they did adopt a screening program, the Human Reliability Program, created to stop people with emotional, psychological, and substance abuse problems from gaining access to nuclear weapons. Eric Schlosser, despite public assurances that everything was fully under control in the winter of 1964, while Dr. Strangelove was in theaters and being condemned as Soviet propaganda, there was nothing to prevent an American bomber crew or missile crew from using their weapons against the Soviets. He also notes that the Air Force was not pleased with these coded switches idea and noted that although they now deny this claim, according to one more source he contacted, the code necessary to launch a missile was set the same at every Minuteman site, which was 00000000. Anyway, Eric Schlosser is the author of Command and Control, and we highly recommend you read this piece, and who knows, maybe the book. Maybe I should read the book. And another example of 1960s filmmaking um, reflecting the Cold War, there's the story of Dr. Zhivago. New book out by Peter Finn and Petra Kovi titled The Zhivago Affair, The Kremlin, The CIA, and The Battle Over a Forbidden Book reveals some startling facts. In 1958, CIA headquarters received two rolls of film containing images of every page of a novel recently published in Italy by a Soviet poet, Boris Pasternak. Dr. Shivago was already being condemned by Moscow, and the CIA was about to ensure that Soviet citizens had a chance to read the banned book themselves. By the end of 1959, the agency had succeeded in secretly publishing a Russian-language edition of the novel and smuggling several thousand copies into the USSR. The caper yielded greater rewards than could have been imagined, yet the CIA had never admitted its role until... The authors of this book dug into the case. Reviewers noted that the novel was never universally acclaimed. Vladimir Nabokov famously dismissed it as clumsy, trite, and melodramatic. But Pasternak's romantic tale of a Moscow physician and his journey to the 20th century threatened Soviet authorities by making the hero's interior life more important than the social revolution he witnessed. Boris Pasternak paid for his impertinence. The Kremlin cut off his income, forced him to decline the Nobel Prize, successfully vilified him, and eventually threw his mistress into a gulag. So there you have it. The CIA not only gave us modern art, they apparently gave us Dr. Zhivago. Now, I don't feel so bad about having tried to read the book three times and bogging down in each attempt. Nevertheless, David Lean's big screen version with Omar Sharif is a pretty damn good movie. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We have more for segment three, so please don't go away. (laughs) 